Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Hidden Compass is an award-winning media company that's turning storytellers and explorers into heroes and championing a new age of discovery. Hidden Compass brings cinematic journalism to stories from around the globe that inspire courage and curiosity. Hidden Compass currently has a digital magazine, podcast, and a speaker series. In November, they're launching The Alliance, a modern exploration society, one that is global and inclusive. Think National Geographic, reimagined for 2021 and beyond. In an era of junk food media, Hidden Compass is a place for people who care about what they put in their minds, bringing you stories that nourish and challenge. Visit www.hiddencompass.net to learn more. We're here with Sarah J. Schmidt, author of Where There's a Whisk, which is a YA novel about a reality TV show regarding cooking. I think one of the things that people are looking for right now, especially in the wake, well, hopefully the wake of the pandemic something that I've talked with other guests about is wanting to find something a little lighter to read something maybe less dark, less heavy. I know that I've seen in talking with agents and editors that they are kind of leaning towards that direction in a lot of cases, not all of course, but trying to find something a little less brooding, which of course has not gone well for me because all of my books tend to be dark and fairly gritty but I'm curious about how you got the idea for this book and what led you to it well first of all thanks for having me I'm excited to be here and talking with you just to preface my answer I was having a conversation with a librarian friend of mine just this morning about how many dark Books are on for Indiana, the Elliot Rosewater Book Award. There's nothing really light and escapey from the dark world we're currently living in. I'm really happy that my book can fill a gap in that area. But actually, funny enough, this book, the idea of it came from a really sad situation. I was doing a school visit a couple of years ago. And when I got there, There was just a real weird vibe in the school. The librarian pulled me aside and she said, I just want you to know that today our state papers came out and listed this county as the worst county in the entire state of Indiana to live in. And so I'm like, okay, well, I can't do anything about that, but we're going to create stories and we're going to come up with characters and we're going to have a lot of fun and, you know, maybe it'll be a distraction. So what I do when I do a school visit is in the morning, we create a character And in the afternoon, we create a plot. So we started creating these characters. Even the protagonist, even the main character is really dark and sad. I'm like, okay, this is going to be super fun. Get to the afternoon. 
and we start brainstorming the plot and people are throwing ideas like the main character finds her mom dead from an overdose with a needle still in her arm and like all this really traumatic stuff. And I'm like, well, there goes the light distraction Mm -hmm. concept I was going for. And afterwards, the librarian told me that like some of these students were sharing actual experiences that they'd had and they were putting this into the plot. And I thought, you know, their lives combined with this public admonishment about where they lived. How do you overcome that? Like, Mm -hmm. how do you overcome the life you're born into if it isn't the greatest or it's not what you want? And so I went out into the car afterwards and kind of sat there for a few minutes just reflecting on that experience because it was really profound for me. I ended up on the way home coming up with Peyton, just thinking about this character. But I wanted her experience to be really hopeful and really positive. And I thought, you know, reality television at the time, there weren't a whole lot of books out that were dealing with the behind the scenes of reality TV. Mm -hmm. And I thought that would be a fun area to explore for research purposes. I got fixated on the cooking aspect. And so I started putting that all together. There was that background for her journey to realize that number one, what she thought was successful isn't necessarily success. And number two, these challenges are not just food challenges. Like they're really challenging her to look at herself and bring out her best self, regardless of where she came from. She had every right to follow her dream and nobody had any right to tell her she couldn't. A couple of things that I want to follow up on. First of all, school visits. I get so many questions, Facebook author groups, things like that. How do you do this? Like, what do you do and how do you do it? I know I specifically am most often speaking to high school students because my books, again, (laughs) content's pretty dark. So I usually am speaking with high schoolers, which a lot of times can be one of the hardest groups to deal with. And I know I have friends that are just terrified to do school visits. They are afraid that they're going to be reliving their high school experiences I, of course, worked in high school for 14 years. You were also a librarian for a long time. So you're kind of familiar with that arena and walking in and handling that age group, not let them bully you off the stage or get heckled. But also I wanted to touch on what you're saying about environment and essence when you walk in. I have been in high schools where... They clearly did not give a shit who I was or why I was there. Usually more upper income and their moms and dads make a lot more money than I do. So it's just not that interesting. And they're polite, but they just don't care. I actually vastly prefer doing lower income schools because those kids are so excited that someone is there. Someone cares. Someone is talking to them. That's where I come from as well. I'm from a very, very poor rural community. And I never met an author until I was one because nobody was going to come and talk to us. Like it just Mm -hmm. wasn't in the cards. I'll go anywhere, but I do enjoy going to smaller communities and going to more rural financially challenged communities But also, like you were saying, sometimes what is going on in the actual environment can really be a challenge. You're like me. Even though my books are 
very dark. I try to keep it light and fun and interesting and I'm making jokes and it's more stand up than anything else. And I walked into a school one day and the librarian that had set things up, she's like, I'm really sorry. Some of the kids have to leave halfway through your presentation because there's a funeral for a student today. Thanks for telling me. And now I'm going to have to kind of reconfigure how I operate. But if you could just talk a little bit about school visits, how you handle them, what you do, talking about that feeling that you get as soon as you walk in the door, you can get a feeling for the culture of a school the second you show up. So if you could talk about that, that would be really helpful for my listeners that are maybe a little scared to try a school visit. First of all, I love school visits. And I think my biggest challenge with this pandemic has been not being able to go into schools because in some ways, that's where my creative energy gets refilled mm-hmm. because I realize that even if I don't think I'm making an impact on people in those moments, I do. And I know what you mean about walking into that school and you're just like, these students don't really care if I'm here or not. <laughs> like, I absolutely know that. My books go into that middle grade range. So I actually do more middle school than I do high school. First of all, they're still smart alecky enough that they'll tr- try to mess with you. I've never had anyone like kind of try to bully me, but you do have those class clowns thinking that they're going to stump you. And Mm -hmm. my goal is always to find a place for that kid's idea in the story. That's probably the moment where I'm like, aha, I've I've done well here is when that student then, because you put that smart out comment in to the story and it works, then they start to get more excited and buy in and they're contributing more. I get that some authors are afraid of school visits. Most of us who wrote probably were traumatized in our school age years in some way or another. There's always going to be that group of students that looks at you like a rock star because they want to be where you are. Mm -hmm. And those are the students that I really really like talking to those students and not about my book. I want to learn about what they're doing. If you walk into a school visit and you make it as much or more about the students than about yourself, I think that's the key to a successful school visit, engaging them, bringing them into the process. And a lot of them, when I come in, especially in the middle school years, they're having to write stories for their eighth grade English class or something like that. And it can be overwhelming. I kind of break down the development of a plot or the development of character to very simple terms. It's obviously more than just those key moments in the story you have to fill in the gaps, but it breaks it down so that those gaps are a little bit more manageable in their minds. And Mm -hmm. that's my goal ultimately. Yeah. It's very true what you're saying about that kid that thinks they're going to throw you. A school visit to me, it's a day of you doing stand up and improv. The first time I did a school visit, I came home and I crashed for the next day and a half. And my husband was like, what? All you did was go and talk to students. And then he saw a pattern every time I did a school visit. I was wiped out. And I finally explained to him, I'm like, no, it was like being on stage for eight hours. Even during lunch, you're still performing. The nice thing about that is you can put yourself in a different headspace when you're performing versus when you're writing or being yourself at home. Like, and there is a persona I think you have to develop a little bit. And I've seen you with teens and at conferences and stuff that we've been at at the same place. And you do that too. Like you're ready for that challenge. Oh yeah, absolutely. I tell everyone. Author Mindy is not real Mindy. It's a different person, especially with the students. It's fun. Like, I agree. It is exhausting because it is pedal to the metal. You're going. 
and it's full send the whole time. One of the keys, I think, with the kids, like you were saying, that one kid that thinks they're going to throw you or they're going to trip you up or whatever. I was in a school for 14 years and I've been substituting for ever since I left. You are not going to throw me. We can go. I always have an exchange with these kids and it's always lighthearted. I'm never being mean. I'm always like pulling that kid out a little bit more. It's fun and it's always lighthearted and engaging. And usually that repartee, it's like, I'm going to get everybody on my side awake and listening because I'm in exchange with one kid. Yeah, absolutely. There's a special recipe for that. I am so grateful for the time that I spent in high schools because it's made me able to do these performances. And I am so glad, like you say, that it is a persona. It is a different human being than who you are at home or when you're writing. That's so true. It couldn't be more true. I actually had the guy that I was dating at the time. We'd been together for years and he came with me to an event one time and it was just a panel. It wasn't a school visit. And it actually rattled him because I was so different. And Mm -hmm. so when he suddenly had this experience of, oh my God, I don't know who my girlfriend is. It was (laughs) very upsetting for him. I told my kids, I'm like, I'll do a volunteer visit at your school because they're both in high school now. And they're like, please don't. And part of me is really glad because I don't think they would ever look at me the same. Like I do reference them in some of my school visits, especially when I talk about like my journey to publication. Um, And I think that they would not appreciate that at all. (laughs) I've been asked to speak like to classes and stuff in my own district where I used to work and now where I substitute. And I've told them before, it's like, you know, I really can't, I can't show up and be Minnie McGinnis author because I play fast and loose. I don't have to worry about that because it's like, you know, I don't work for this district. I'm not up there swearing or anything, but I'm being pretty fast and loose with the kids. And it's like when I'm substituting, they have to be listening to me and they have to know that I can get angry and that you will get in trouble and things like that. And it's like, Minnie Beginners, the author does not get in trouble. She lets yeah. things fly. And so it's like, I can't do that with the kids that I might be in charge of the next day. Oh yeah. No, because when you're doing a school visit, you're not there to police the students. Like that's not, not your job. If anybody's job it is, it's whoever brought you in. And I always tell, because when, because I never know where a story or plots are going to go. So I always tell the librarians, it's normally librarians or English teachers who brought me in. If you feel like this is going in a direction you're uncomfortable with, it is your job to step in. I'm yeah. not going to stop their creative process. Like If I'm uncomfortable, which it takes a lot to make me uncomfortable in those situations, then I may like try to turn it a little bit, but I'm not going to step in and be like, nope, we're not going there. You're the no. one who gets to be the meanie. I am the one to inspire creativity. So yeah, <laughs> me too. I've done school visits where the person that brought me in or the staff or the principal or whoever goes up ahead of time and they're like, Mindy McGinnis is here and this is a big deal and you will listen to her and you will be quiet. Absolutely stomp down on them. 
And then I'm walking in and I'm like, hey, kids, you know, let's be silly. And they're just like, we're not allowed, you know, and their little faces are completely shut down. I had that happen at a school visit with seventh graders, which can be the most fun. And it's like, I will say things or tell jokes. And then the kids, because especially at that little, the junior high age, they like to then turn to each other and repeat the joke. I don't know why, but that's what they do. They just say the joke again to each other and then they keep laughing. I just let it roll. I just let it be loose. And I let them do that and talk to each other a little bit. There are certain times like, you know, not to squash the laugh. And there is nothing worse than when you say something that is supposed to be funny and you pause for the laugh and there is no laugh. Oh, I know. That's the sound of death on a stage. Oh, yes. I don't know how comedians do it. I have told the staff, it's your job to police them if they're actually being rude. But if they are talking to each other a little bit, or if somebody falls asleep, great. If somebody doesn't want to be there and they don't want to listen, I don't want you waking them up and saying, pay attention. Let them sleep. They don't want to be here. They're going to be a distraction if you wake them up. You waking them up is a distraction. Leave them alone. Let them sleep. Because here's the thing. In that audience, you know there are potential writers. And they're always the ones who get irritated and self-police those students who are really pushing that that envelope on what's like funny slash disrespectful. So they kind of self-police a little bit. But you know that there are those students who are in there and they are just lapping up you being there and the things that you're teaching. And my goal when I do a school visit is that hopefully at least one or two students has been inspired to like not necessarily be a writer, but follow whatever their passion is, whatever their creative self is, and to to not be afraid or ashamed or anything of it and, and to just go for it. Yeah, I agree. Like I really hate it when the students feel like they can't interact or engage with you. Like there, I have some, some things that I'll do in schools where they just want me to come in and talk about my writing journey and I'll do that. And that's my least favorite visit to do. Yeah. (laughs) Because number one, I'm talking about myself while I love talking about myself. There's just something really awkward for me about standing in front of a bunch of students who really probably do not care about my fourth grade obsession with choose your own adventures. Although strangely enough, there are some students who get excited when I say, yeah, my writing was inspired from choose your own adventure books. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you never um, know who you're going to reach. No, I prefer to go into schools and I will give discounts to schools that are like underrepresented populations Mm -hmm. or lower socioeconomic neighborhoods and stuff like that, because going back to where there's a whisk, they have every right to pursue their, their dreams and to be inspired. And I'm not saying like I'm a super inspirational person, but I do hope that the experience makes them think about what brings them joy. Every college has that one professor whose class is so popular, students line up to get a spot. One Day University brings over 200 of these top-rated professors together online to present incredible live-streamed talks based on their most popular courses. Professors are selected from schools across the country, including Yale, Stanford, Harvard, UCLA, Duke, Michigan, Columbia, and many more. Every weekday, One Day University offers a new one-hour live-streamed talk followed by a live Q&A with the professor. Members also get access to a library with over 500 past recorded talks available on demand. You can learn something new every day about history, politics, art, science, music, psychology, and much more. 
Memberships are $8.95 a month or $89 for a year. First two weeks are free. If you use code WRITERWRITER and sign up for an annual plan, you'll get your first year for half price. Some popular talks that could be of interest to my audience would be Books That Changed the World from Joseph Luzzi of Bard College or Four Films That Changed America from Mark Lapadula of Yale. Visit www.onedayu.com to learn more. And don't forget to use the promo code WRITERWRITER for half off an annual membership plan. I want to talk about where there's a whisk and I want to talk about setting it in the world of reality television. I don't really watch reality TV shows that often. I remember when Survivor was basically the first reality TV show back when I was in college and just being turned off by everything about it. And even though I wasn't really actively engaging in being a writer yet, a lot of me just kind of screamed, no, I don't like this. There's something about this that feels definitely untrue and scripted, but at the same time, pretending not to be. I didn't like it. It left a bad taste in my mouth. But a friend of mine was on a reality TV show. I don't even know which one. He was cut early. I know that he's a drummer, so maybe it was something with music. I don't know. He's a really nice guy. And the way they shot his talking head sequences, the way they positioned him in the group, and the manipulations that they did, he came off as just like this horrible person. And it was the way that they maneuvered the light and the way the music that they played with him And the editing that they did with the things that he said, and then just positioning what he would say against what someone else said that made it sound like these two people have a problem with each other when really neither one of them was even talking about the other individual. People think I'm a dickhead because of the way that they manipulated my words and my affect and yeah. it just it really affected him mentally and emotionally. Yeah, you can't see this, but the whole time we were talking, I'm just nodding. But I did a lot of research and a lot of bloopers and a lot of articles with people who'd been on reality shows to kind of get that back story and what really is happening. That was pivotal to the storyline because there were things happening that were being manipulated behind the scenes for Peyton. And she got to the point where she couldn't tell what was real and what was not real, what was true and what was not true. And trying to decide how much of herself she was willing to give up to be a part of the show and stay on the show. I do delve into that. And it isn't necessarily to do like some big expose on reality television. It's an expose on reality because we Mm. live in a time now where everybody's pictures are filtered and everybody's choosing what to put out for themselves. And they're, they're narrating their own lives and putting this best face forward, which I think is causing a lot of damage Mm -hmm. to not just like definitely to, I know my age group, because I have friends who are like, Oh my gosh, this family is so perfect. And we never go on vacation or do this. And I'm like, dude, that's not real. You don't know what kind of fights happened over that vacation. Yeah. Like, but teenagers, especially their entire lives have been filtered. And yeah. I just wanted to pull that curtain back and go, not everything is perfect. And it's okay if If you're not living up to what you think somebody else is living up to, that's okay. You do you because that's the Mm -hmm. only thing you can do. 
it's funny that you say like our generation. So like I'm 42. I really use social media very heavily when I first started uh, in the publishing industry. I never used it that heavily as a individual, like in my personal life, I would use it occasionally Facebook, especially because that was what was kind of the new thing for a while. (laughs) I stopped because people would friend me and I would be like, Oh yeah, sure. You. And then I would post things and I felt like people would then speak to me in public about things that I said on Facebook Mm -hmm. and I wasn't having interactions with people while I was in front of them. It was weird to me that my interactions with people in real life were about what I had done online. I didn't like it. I don't have a lot to say about the filter because my bullshit detector is always set high. Right. And so I've always just been like, you don't look like that. And I know it, you know, I think that's one of my favorites. So I kind of am obsessed with TikTok, and that was a pandemic. Um, that's a result of the pandemic. But mm-hmm. what I love about TikTok is that filter is so obvious. Yes. That it, it's comical. Anyone can do it. I actually have less problem with like TikTok and the filters on TikTok. We always think we know because we're, we feel like we know somebody through social media, like what you're talking about. We feel like we know that person. So we Mm -hmm. assume we know what their life is like. Mm -hmm. And then we have our reality of what our life is like. And we, as a species tend to compare, or at least Mm -hmm. us as an American society, we can, you know, it's the whole go all the way back to keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. Like we're always comparing our lives to other people and that's just not healthy. No. It's just not good for your soul at all. No. I try not to participate in it. Like you said, it is instinctive. Like we all do it to a certain degree. I don't use social media as an individual. Like we were talking about before, you have your author persona mm-hmm. and your real persona. Anything you see on social media is author persona Mindy. Real mm-hmm. Mindy is not out there anymore because she thinks it's all a freaking dog and pony show and I won't interact with it. Something else that happened uh, for me right before the pandemic. So the fall of 2019, I went through a breakup and I had been with this person for 12 years. We broke up like very suddenly. It was truly uh, traumatic. I had been with this person for 12 years. We lived together and then suddenly they were gone and all their stuff was gone in the space of honestly a day. Yeah. And it was just really hard. And, and my, then my dog died. <laughs> I feel like we were at an event around the time all that this was happening. Cause this I is think a very familiar were. story. I was still doing my, my duties. Like I was still going out. Like I got on a plane and I flew out west to like a a booksellers convention like the day that he was packing his stuff and leaving and i got home at two in the morning and i walk in the house and like his stuff's gone it's like you flew to missouri and you came back home and everything had changed and your life was different just like psychologically like broke me for a little while then my dog died then the pandemic came down on us i was just done i was not using social media at all like not even as an author because like you were saying before You know, author Mindy has energy and is out there whipping up people and being creative. And it was like, I couldn't do that. Like, I couldn't access that at that time. It wasn't there for me. 
So I didn't have anything to say other than everything sucks. Right. And, and that was not something I was going to be putting out there. No one needed to hear that at the beginning of the pandemic. (laughs) I just didn't use it. I didn't use social media at all. I fell off the map and I didn't even do an announcement like things in my personal life. I won't be on Twitter anymore. Like I wasn't even going to do. You were just like, peace out. I'm done. Yeah. Nobody needs to know. Interestingly enough, my sales, my sales weren't affected. Of course, like my likes and my retweets and my new follows and all that stuff fell off because I wasn't there anymore. Yeah. But it didn't have any effect on my career. And I was like, well, you know, the whole reason I've even been doing this is for my career. So what the hell am I doing? Where There Was a Wiss just came out two weeks ago. I did use a little bit of social media to promote it. Probably not near as much as my publisher wanted me to promote Mm -hmm. it. But it goes back like that pandemic side, like you were talking about, like author Mindy. Pandemic Sarah thought author Sarah was a pain in the ass and needed to shut (laughs) up. But I was in the middle of edits. Author Sarah and pandemic Sarah fought daily to the point that I was like, you know what? I... I even asked my husband, I'm like, hey, can we just send my advance back and can we just cancel this book? Because I can't do it. Like, I just don't have the brain waves to do this anymore. It was a struggle. I hate that all conversations come back to COVID. But it's such a big part of our lives. And like, we even had the conversation because where there's a whisk is set in New York City. And I use the city as like a ninth character. Mm -hmm. And we had a conversation about how this was going to be coming out after COVID and we're trying to pitch it as a you know, contemporary, but I feel like now it's almost historical fiction. Right. But like we had a conversation about, do we build any of this in? Do we build it in as like in a post COVID we basically came down to, no, we're going to pretend like COVID never happened because yep. There are going to be all those books that come out post COVID about viral infections and that's coming down the line and my experiences in COVID. And we all lived that. Like I remember, oh, I've been watching Grey's Anatomy the last season, 17, and I had like almost PTSD when they were going through the beginning of the pandemic because I remember like where I was sitting on the day that this happened. And like it's just too fresh. And so we decided no, we're going to pretend it never happened. And we're going to create a New York City that is pre-COVID. I haven't written it into any of my books either. Well, your books don't need any more darkness. No, they don't. They certainly don't. Um, my book that came out to my 2021 release, it's The Initial Insult, which is uh, based on Edgar Allan Poe short stories, one of them being The Mask of the Red Death, which of course is about a pandemic. Yeah. And the way I used it in the book was that there's a... Uh, big like drunken kegger party going on and a stomach flu breaks out because I just love the idea of all these drunk, really drunk teenagers, then also all having a really viral stomach bug. There's a lot of puking in that book. I wrote that book in like 2018. There's a tiger King like situation with an exotic animal owner. And then there's this viral and they're talking about it. Like in the book, like there's messages coming out from the school and it's like, if you have a fever, you need to stay home. We are monitoring the situation in the next school over where this has broken out. And people were like, Oh my gosh, you must've written this right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm like, Nope. Oh my God. You're a prophet. Holy cow. (laughs) 
between that and um tiger king and well it was so funny because my editor told me he was like i don't know how we're gonna ever pitch this book this is going to be so difficult and then 2020 happened and it's like it's the tiger king meets edgar Allan poe in appalachia with covid except it's a stomach flu and my editor was like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) netflix did me a favor with the tiger king toss out i'm like oh this is good I mean, there was a collective loss of brain function because oh, yeah. that's okay. We'll all recover. <laughs> we got a lot of gifts, though. There were so many. Yeah, I'm over here like, oh, reality TV sucks. No, I, I well, that's a documentary. That's different. I just want to be like, that's more highbrow, but it's the Tiger King. <laughs> right. It's like the lowest oh. common denominator of highbrow. There you go. It really, really is. Last thing, why don't you let listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find Where There's a Whisk? Where There's a Whisk is available anywhere you can find books. If you want to request it from your indie bookseller, I would really appreciate that because we do need to support those indie booksellers, especially publishing is more and more questionable about how many books and when books are coming out. So support your local booksellers. I am on TikTok, but barely, but I'm going to be coming on more. That's my favorite platform period follow me on twitter at sj schmidt yeah just go to tiktok and look up sarah j underscore schmidt and you'll find me writer writer pants on fire is produced by mindy mcginnis music by jack corbel Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.